0: Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and this week on Press Advance, we still have no Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now, I have for the longest time, since the beginning of this Congress, said I would like to see a bipartisan compromise that would make it so that we are not so beholden to the extremes of the parties. And yet, here we are. Supposedly, the Republicans are working yet again to see if they can nominate a Speaker of the House unilaterally. So I wanted to talk this week to a friend of mine who is a House Democrat. Wiley Nickel serves North Carolina's 13th District. It's a swing district. He's been a friend for a long time and believes in finding Common ground and moving the ball forward. Wiley has been part of the Problem Solvers Caucus, so he's been working with Republicans on legislation and has actually passed some things out of committee. Sadly, not a lot of, has passed the House, probably because they currently have no speaker. But one of the things that Wiley and I talk about is the bill that he introduced No Budget, No Pay. To essentially hold members of Congress accountable, if they can't get a budget, they don't get paid. Currently, they all get paid for doing nothing. Wiley tells me how he's so frustrated and what could we do to move the ball forward with press advance.
1: You know, people are just fed up with with partisan gridlock, and and I am too. I mean, you probably, I, I need a better, more hopeful message for for, for this podcast today, but you know, th- this is this is like a list of all the things that we've done in this Congress. I mean, there's, there's just nothing on it.
0: And you're holding up a blank piece of paper. I mean, that's, people should know, there's nothing.
1: We temporarily funded the government for 45 days in a bipartisan way, and we avoided defaulting on our debt Otherwise, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about my accredited investor bill that we passed in a bipartisan way, but there's been so little that has actually made it to the president's desk. And there's just no end in sight with what we're doing now. So people are fed up with the constant partisanship and gridlock. And I was one of just six Republican seats we flipped in the last election. So my constituents want me to stop the noise and start doing things that help people and solving problems. That's one group that I talked about earlier, the Problem Solvers Caucus is the place in the House where we do that. 32 Democrats, 32 Republicans, we meet every week. And it's where you know these important bipartisan discussions happen. We're still talking, we meet, and it's the place where the rubber really meets the road.
0: You mentioned the Problem Solvers Caucus, and it's interesting because I was watching your election night from News Nation and, of course, saw that you won, but then saw how narrowly the House was won by Republicans. Just enough of a margin that it wasn't a resounding win that they were expecting. So then going into Congress... We've talked about, you know, you watched the Republicans struggle to find a speaker who could please both— the folks, and I don't even know if I call some of the people far right, because there's far right like economically, there's far right um, socially, there's far right, I just want a lot of attention. And I'd say sometimes these far right and sometimes the far left, they don't actually wanna do their job. So we saw that they wanted attention early on, in the Republicans, and so I kept thinking, Alyssa Farah and I talked about, Is there a chance the problem solvers or some sort of a bipartisan group could get together and bridge the difference so that the Republican Party was not so beholden to that far-right provocateur and I would and I say this like with all seriousness if the Democrats were elected with such a small majority and we had on one hand whether it's Rashida Tlaib saying she doesn't want to fund our defense contracts or someone else I wouldn't want to be beholden to that sliver either it's far easier when you can find consensus and move things forward and yet it didn't happen at the start of the Congress, when you got there, Kevin McCarthy could have made a deal with the Democrats instead of making a deal with his far right, his far right provocateurs. He didn't. Why?
1: I really wish he had. I wish we had Republicans, you know, who would you know, want to be a speaker for the entire House. And um, they've never tried. Kevin really only wanted to be speaker if he had the support of 218 Republicans, and he never did. And that's why we really didn't get anything done during his time as speaker, and and it's frustrating for me, and it's frustrating for my constituents because they see it exactly the way you see it, and it makes a ton of sense for rational people. But in Washington, there are so many Republicans who have this feeling that if the Republican caucus starts working with Democrats in a a serious power-sharing way, they'll just lose it. And I think we're going to get there. I think in the coming weeks, there's a real good chance that when they continue to fail over and over and over in in terms of electing a speaker, they're gonna realize the only alternative is there is a majority of of the Republicans who would join with us on the important things we have to do. And we wanna be there. People like me, right in the middle, have signaled that willingness over and over. You know, at least we could give, you know, our temporary speaker, Patrick McHenry, uh, power, you know, to to do these bipartisan bills in 15-day increments. But uh, right now you just have these warring groups of Republicans who just hate some other group and they're able to, to block somebody else from getting a majority.
0: And so what ends up happening is that white sheet of paper, nothing. like Nothing is on the paper.
1: We're going on three weeks of the US House doing absolutely nothing. No bills, no votes. I have so many bills I've worked on in committee in a bipartisan way that I, I want to get to the floor. I want to start legislating. And we've done a lot that just isn't going to get A vote on the floor, because nothing's getting a vote on the floor right now.
0: So tell me about one of them, because I'm particularly interested in this. One of the most important things Congress does is fund everything we decide as a government to support a budget every year. And you actually have introduced the No Budget, No Pay Act. The legislation, which has bipartisan support, would hold members of Congress financially accountable if Congress does not agree to a budget resolution. So tell me about this. And basically, does that mean that for doing nothing, which is right now what Congress is sadly doing, they would not get paid for that?
1: The reason we did the bill is if we have a government shutdown— military federal employees my congressional staff they won't get paid the only people who get paid in a shutdown are members of congress and it, it you know you tell people that you you know from my perspective it makes me so incredibly angry because we ought to be in the same boat as everybody else and and frankly it's just a good incentive for people to get their act together and that's why we have bipartisan support on the bill we're going to keep pushing on this But our focus right now is just keeping the lights on. And we got to do that real soon. We got, we have some must pass things we have to do. We have to support Ukraine. If we don't, you get to a point where they like start running out of bullets. You know, Israel is at war with Hamas. We need to stand with Israel. We need to move funding to Israel. And we have to pass a budget, temporary funding, just to get us through the end of the year by November 17th. So these are must pass, must do things. And we can't do any of them now because we don't have a speaker and, I don't know if we're going to get one anytime soon, until Republicans decide that they have to work with Democrats. For people listening, these Republicans maybe they don't want advice from me, but they're giving up all of their power by not agreeing internally. You know that's how you you succeed in Congress. And what what Speaker Pelosi did, she always settled her differences privately, and she never lost these kind of votes on the floor. She knew how to count votes, and you got a problem, you know, you sort it out. And they just are unable to do it
0: you know it's interesting wiley because i'm a democrat through and through but it does feel like when we go hyper right hyper left hyper right hyper left we're kind of just undoing each other's work over and over and so even when i look back at you know pelosi's tenure she did she managed to keep the democrats support but how much stronger would we be if we would have the Republicans and the Democrats support on some of these critical investments, including our nation's security and our schools, the things that we care about for our kids, the nutrition programs, just basic stuff. Come on, guys.
1: These are the lasting things. The big bills that we do working together, they stick. They stay and uh, I, I'm hopeful that we can get there on the must do things for the country. I, I think immigration reform, border security is a big bucket where we can get there if we can start legislating again. That's a place where I think you know if we work from the center, we can do big things in this Congress, but the bar is so low. it's It's really just like passing a budget and making sure that we don't hand over Ukraine to Putin and Taiwan to China and Israel to Hamas. I mean, it's pretty crazy. That's where we are with the world. And we're rudderless here in Congress because we can't act.
0: Well, and that's a question I get a lot is, well, why aren't the Democrats going to the Republicans?
1: We are, but we're, we're, we're negotiating against ourselves because we don't have a partner that wants to work with us right now. And if it gets bad enough, we only need five Republicans to come over and join with us. And uh, we're able to do a ton of stuff. So I don't know the five Republicans who that would be, I have some ideas, but they have signaled zero interest in that. But the best solution is getting to a point where House Democrats can work with a numerical majority of the Republicans in Congress on doing these things like the budget and uh, supporting Ukraine and Israel, and hopefully immigration and border security. You know, the far left, the far right is going to be against these things. But, uh, you know, if we just work from the center, that's really the only path that I see in this Congress.
0: So tell me about the Problem Solvers Caucus. This has existed since before you got to Congress. Is it an equal number of Democrats and an equal number of Republicans?
1: It is. It's an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, 32 Democrats, 32 Republicans. We meet every week and, you know, we have a a great process for introducing and supporting each other in bipartisan legislation. So, you know, if I've got a bill that I want the the Problem Solvers Caucus to to endorse, I, I present it. If 75% agrees, then they, we get the endorsement. And you know, we were the group that did a lot of work in making sure we, we raised the debt ceiling. We had agreed on top line numbers in that deal that McCarthy and the Republicans went back on their word weeks after that passed. But that's the place we have to get to the the previously agreed to budget top lines. That's going to be the best way that we can move forward with a real budget.
0: Well, and that's what I remember being asked on News Nation about the compromise. And Chris Cuomo said, well, don't you think that this means they're just going to ask Democrats to compromise again. And I was like, that's kind of the nature of government, Chris. (laughs) Yes, I do think that they're going to ask Democrats to compromise again. But, you know, here or there. So I was looking at the $100 billion that President Biden just asked for, of the house and senate and the senate says they're going to push it forward the house right now can't negotiate to your point is the problem solvers group still meeting in and amongst this or are the republicans otherwise engaged
1: we've done a number of meetings with the democrats as as republicans continue to try to organize but there's no one in charge on the Republican side for us to go to on these things until they can elect a speaker. And how Jim Jordan or a Patrick McHenry or a Kevin McCarthy or a Tom Emmer deals with these issues can vary a ton. So we're, we're just stuck waiting. And then we can finally get back to work when they end their civil war and get their act together as Republicans to put forward a speaker or or they ditch the, the 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 crazy eight, the far right folks who who really have no interest in doing anything and governing, and uh, start to work with us.
0: Well, and that's the question, right? Because without passing anything, I mean, then we don't have a functional government. But evidently, Congress will get paid because they have not yet passed your bill, <laughs> which is a different issue. But the one hundred billion dollars that Biden is asking for includes. $13.6 billion for border security, which right now people are saying that is critically important because we do need to make sure that we do not have people coming into this country that have not been vetted.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the border security portion of that is, is a huge priority for me. I, I, I was one of the group of Democrats who supported a, a bill to extend temporary Title 42 authority to the Biden administration. That's one of those things that I think they ought to have that that option for the next few years, and uh, want to do everything I can. I, I you know, and the number of people coming into this country is going to continue to increase. I, I was down in Panama on a CODEL months ago, and the numbers of people coming from South America through Panama are up. You know, I think we're expecting you know four, maybe five times the number that came just last year through that area. The majority of those are from Venezuela. Thing, an oppressive Maduro regime, it's going to become an even greater problem.
0: Do you get the impression that they're coming now because the oppression has gotten worse or they're coming now because they are under a false impression that the border is open? And I blame that as much on Republicans and dem- as Democrats because – I hear this rhetoric all the time from the Republicans saying the border is open, the border is open, which it is not. We are still under the laws that passed like 20 plus years ago when we were doing press advance. (laughs) You were like literally in the Gore campaign. (laughs) And yet, you know, we have more people coming. And it doesn't make sense to me, Wiley, because I think, okay, you know, is it Biden's policies, which aren't even policies yet? Or... Is it actually that the oppression has gotten worse? I don't understand.
1: Yeah, I, I think we need to talk a lot about economic development and foreign aid. Those are things that can make sure we don't have this problem. So, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the ounce of prevention is, you know, strengthening our economic ties with with our neighbors in Central America and South America. That will help. Foreign aid helps a ton. There are two and a half million Venezuelans that Colombia's housing in their country, keeping them in Colombia may, means they don't come to the U.S. So the money we spend on, on foreign aid there makes a big difference. But the border, you know, continues to be a big problem, and and, and it really it comes down to what I, I think the meat of your question is, is: immigration reform. We need comprehensive immigration reform, and we continue to kick the can down the road. We have done nothing to change a, 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 just a crazy system where someone gets into the U.S. and they, then they get a court date, and it's like ten years. You have a a system that just is not working. But funding more Border Patrol agents, more investments in our ports of entry, and then the physical border, physical wall, you know, those those are things that that will help. And we need to continue making progress there.
0: The things that I look at when I look at this funding amount and I wonder whether the Republicans are going to be okay with this, is right now there's $61 billion for Ukraine and $14.3 billion for Israel. Why is it so much more for Ukraine funding than for funding in Israel?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, certainly a greater adversary. And for my constituents, it just sounds like a lot of money. We've got a lot of problems here in the U.S. that we need to address. But uh, the point that I think is really important for the folks listening is If we hand over Ukraine to Vladimir Putin, we will spend 100 times more than that containing an aggressive Russia all over the globe. It will embolden China to go into Taiwan. It will signal the rest of the Middle East that Israel is fair game. So we have to hold the line with Ukraine. And if we don't, we will literally be handing it over to Putin. And frankly, I don't understand my Republican colleagues' opposition here. Ronald Reagan is literally rolling over in his grave right now. If he could understand this pro-Russia you know, group in the Republican Party, it just blows my mind that uh, they don't have the foresight to see what a clear and present danger Putin is, especially if we hand over Ukraine.
0: And, you know, to the folks who in your district ask about this, how do you make it real for them? Because I think sometimes, Wiley, it seems so far away. But if We lose in Ukraine and Putin does invade a neighbor. U.S. servicemen and women from North Carolina will be headed to that war. We know that because of our NATO alliance, we will have to fight to defend that. Now, Trump had said he wanted to pull out of NATO. I think a lot of people, you know, would say, why would we defend Poland or the like? But this is all, and as— You know, even Mark Milley has talked about, it's all the security apparatus that has kept us safe since World War II. What do you say when you're talking to people on the ground in North Carolina about this war and how it affects them?
1: Number one, all politics is local. North Carolina, you know, we have a significant defense presence in our state. That's one of the things we do really well. I've got Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in my district, Fort Liberty, the largest base in the nation is just miles outside of my district. So thousands of people who work there live in, in the 13th district, 49,000 veterans are in my congressional district. So in my part of you know the country, Uh, They support a strong national defense, and and my constituents understand uh, why we need to be supporting Ukraine. Other members of Congress have different districts, but North Carolina, we know that this is in our national security interest. So I don't have maybe the, the same level of opposition from folks. My Republican colleagues from North Carolina are generally very good on these issues. I think most of them would be supportive when we get to the Ukraine supplemental funding. But, you know, it's one where a lot of other parts of the country that you really need to have these discussions and explain why holding the line with Russia now is going to be a national security issue for us and an investment that I think it was General Milley said, you know, we're going to have to double the defense budget if we hand over Ukraine, because we're going to be dealing with Russia in so many other parts of the world. And it's just a question of standing with democracies. That's really the big fundamental question we have in the world right now. Authoritarian regimes against democracy and democracies of the world have to stand together. We're going to be going into a very, very scary place.
0: It is. And it's depressing. It's depressing all the time. And yet, you know, what I love is there are people in Congress actually working on something like a bill that would say, if you don't get a budget. You can't get paid. So uh, give me some names of colleagues who you respect across the aisle, if you would, of people who are actually doing the right thing. I would love that.
1: You know, you look at people like Patrick McHenry, who's the chair of the Financial Services Committee, which I sit on in the House. We've moved important legislation. I, I have a great accredited investor bill that I moved in a bipartisan way through the floor of the House. We got 383 votes earlier this year on that bill. It's going to be moving through the Senate, you know, very soon too. So I'm going to get a bill across the finish line on the president's desk. We passed digital assets, uh, a market structure bill, a stable coin bill through the financial services committee in a bipartisan way. So there, there's some good work there when, you know, people like French Hill, Patrick McHenry in that committee who are part of that. So they don't get a ton of attention, but there, there certainly are folks there that uh, that are working really hard. And, uh, you know, my job is just to build those relationships. And that's what I focus on and when it comes down to it, I'm working to build that trust and build those relationships so that we can move forward on these issues together.
0: Patrick McHenry, you raise an interesting name there because that's, you know, the name right now. So have you talked to him directly about the situation and whether he would take the elevated status?
1: You know, a, a little bit, but he, he is focused on just doing the job that he was assigned. I think if push comes to sub, he would be willing to do it, but he is not interested or actively pursuing it. And, uh, you know, we have a deadline here with passing a a budget by November 17th. So that mechanism, I think, will prompt some action uh, one way or another.
0: We're getting perilously close to that deadline. So Tom Emmer, has he reached across to any Democrats who you know?
1: No, at this stage with the Republicans, it's just a kiss of death if they think they're going to work with us as they're trying to get 218 people behind the same person. So they're only trying to work with each other. And if we get to the point of finally getting outreach from Republicans, there's plenty of us that, that want to work together with them.
0: Well, and that's the thing, right? Even Hakeem Jeffries said he wants to work across the aisle. Now, I don't know if you'd have to all 212 votes for a Republican. There would be some on our side who sit out. But how many votes do you think the Democrats could deliver to a Republican candidate?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think the devil is in the details. It depends what the deal is. and. Folks like me would be happy if Keem Jeffries is on board with some kind of a deal, and it includes funding for Ukraine and Israel and passing a budget in a bipartisan way. Many of us you know, are, are all on board, um, but it just depends what that deal is. And even though you, you think they should have, they, they, they haven't had any serious conversations. But at some point in the next week, hopefully we, we finally can get there.
0: God, I hope so. And I think Tom Emmer could, but it sounds like he's not knocking on any doors who could get him maybe 200 votes, <laughs> which seems silly. So silly. Oh, Wiley, I I definitely want to keep up to date on all that's going on right now. But I did want to end on, so, you know, I I named the podcast Press Advance because a couple reasons, you know, what we did was we set the stage for history and started kind of making, you know, moves in advance of what everybody saw on television. And I hope that we can make some moves ahead of what every actually comes out that we're setting the groundwork for bipartisanship, for bridging differences, for finding commonality. And to that end, it's kind of a play on word, press advance on this lovely moment (laughs) in time where everyone seems so stuck in resistance mode that we can't even see each other. So what are some of your favorite press advance stories?
1: I have one that you'll appreciate. So when you're doing press advance, one of the sort of super on the ground working, doing your thing is when you have a group of press in the buffer. So right in front of the stage, you're the press advance person. You've got these people with you. They're getting their photos in this super secure secret service space in front of your principal. And I was the advance guy in charge of it. This was Al Gore's Iowa victory speech in 1999 or 2000. I'm trying to remember if it was December or January.
0: I think that one may have been January. Didn't yeah. they start moving it back on us after Gore?
1: <laughs> you know, it was cold. It was Iowa, and but you know, we beat. Uh, uh, Bill Bradley. So it was the you know the, the victory speech and I had rigged these confetti cannons to shoot confetti at the end. And my friend his name is Stinn, was the press advance guy and he was there with all the reporters ready to get this shot of the confetti and Al Gore and Tipper and you know this great shot and it was this thing where it was it was shoot like a, a like a giant ball of confetti into the air and it would explode over his head and the, the first one went off and sort of exploded, but then the second went off, went off and it didn't explode. It ricocheted off the roof and smashed him in the head. And He thought, <laughs> he, he, he thought someone from the crowd had like punched him. And so he's going around, you know, trying to get the Secret Service to, to help. Find the person that just nailed him in the head, and 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 eventually someone found th- this giant ball of confetti there, and, and showed him no it was the con- the confetti cannon that that I had sh- had these guys shoot off that you know, anyway that that, that <laughs> I don't know if, if that hopefully translates in pocket. the head, yeah.
0: A fellow advanced guy. Well, you know, one that I was obsessed with when I was younger was uh was when. President George H.W. Bush puked on the Japanese. (laughs) And so I was so thrilled to meet his communications director. David Demarest was teaching at Stanford and was helping out with a President Obama thing. And I was like, oh, my God, tell me everything. And, you know, because a lot of those overseas trips you do you're not supposed to have cameras in some of these moments so it's like why does he even have the photo of the president you know vomiting out there well david was like you must have been better at your job than i was because i let the archival purposes only cameras (laughs) in the room and then of course they they captured the vomit (laughs) in person. And it was like, oh, my God. It is so funny because, gosh, the number of things that went wrong and then the number of things that sometimes nobody ever knew that they all went wrong. But it was such an absolute honor to get to see So much of history unfold before your eyes and now, Wiley, getting to see it in a very different way and getting to shape it, I hope that all of these lessons can go into it. I have no doubt that they are and that we could hopefully just find some bipartisan consensus and not just vomit on each other. (laughs)
1: It's a great way to extend that metaphor. I I love it.
0: I'm really grateful for Congressman Wiley Nickel for joining me on this episode of Press Advance. Something he has experience in, and hopefully his voice will get to change the halls of Congress. I will definitely be following up with him on what the problem solvers can accomplish after hopefully we get a House Speaker. But for now, I'm really grateful for all of you who listened. You can follow Press Advance wherever you get your podcasts and follow me on social media. And you can let me know what you think of the podcast. I'm at Johanna Masca.